Hey Network Science peeps, researchers. Today on the pod is Alice Schwarze. We talk about Alice's paper, Motifs for Processes on Networks. Really exciting stuff. Alice is a postdoctoral research scholar at the Department of Biology at the University of Washington. Good old UW. Her research combines ideas and methods from applied math and network science to study complex systems in biology and in neuroscience. Alice holds a, something very fancy, a DPhil known to us mortals uh, as a PhD in mathematics from the University of Oxford. And she holds a master's and a bachelor's in physics. Actually, her master's is in, is in theoretical physics and a bachelor's, <laughs> bachelor's is in physics from Technische Universität Berlin. She is committed to supporting students from underrepresented groups in academia and convenes the seminar series, Women in Network Science. I should say the sound is not ideal for the beginning of the podcast, but it gets much better around the 17 minute mark. Uh, and that's around the time when we call in a dedicated external recorder. But enough with the preamble. Let's get to the show. All right, but let's let me begin to be a little bit more podcasty. I'm sorry to stop. Uh, I'm going to try and get back to being a human being, but just to, to kind of get the thing uh, moving, we, I should be um, I should be podcasting. So when I started this, and maybe this is already I I'm totally I shouldn't be podcasting because I'm so bad at it. <laughs> so so this is already annoying. I'm annoying to myself. But when I started this. And I thought who to invite. I thought, let me invite uh, some people that I know and let me try and find a few people that I don't know. But let me also invite some uh, younger researchers, because I think what I wanted to do was to talk about research and the research process and all the work that's going on in our field. And while, you know, if you can get someone super famous, that's fun. But I also like this idea of different perspectives. And then you engaged with the idea on Twitter. And you you kind of suggested a bunch of people, and you also made a cartoon or an, I don't even know like a an image that revealed the exact thought process behind me making the podcast in the first place. You know, those things are called memes. Well, is it a meme <laughs> when it has so many? Pain? I guess it is. Oh, it is a meme. Yes, sure. I mean, I I think of memes. I'm glad you're teaching me. So that's why I'm bringing the youth on here. Is, um, <laughs> I now remember also like the biker, the biker uh, repair shop meme that also has multi-panels. I thought it might have too many panels to be a meme, but I now see that memes can be multi-paneled also. Yes. All right. But I, I thought they sometimes they had to be a little bit more compact. There's a lot yeah, of work. Those were, those were kind of the original ones and then it branched out um, like. Because uh, memes are complex systems in themselves now, I think. Yes, there's a paper. There's a paper yeah. waiting. <laughs> so you made a meme uh, that revealed uh, with uh, admirable uh, clarity the procrastinating ways that were even involved in. I mean, to be honest, I made the trailer just to make sure that I made the podcast. Mm -hmm. Because it was a kind of, after having made the trailer, it would have been so embarrassing not to make the podcast. 
Um, but anyway, <laughs> I thought when I saw that, I thought maybe I should talk to uh, you. And also, I had noticed that you were um, interested in motifs, which is something that I also care a lot about uh, in networks. So I also thought it could be a fun talk in that way. And then I started following you on Twitter. And immediately, I... I saw a lot of pictures of cats. Oh yeah, yeah. So that is so, so that's also why I'm kind of sometimes panning to the right is that I'm sitting on my balcony and my cat is just there's a window so I have an audience on this side and she's very unhappy that she can't be at the ba on the balcony with me right now. It's yes. causing a bit of a ruckus there. I don't think you could see her if I turn up the the the, the, the laptop right now because she's black. And she's inside in the dark, which like usually works out in her favor. She likes being in places where she can't be seen. But at the moment, she's like, let me out, let me out. But you should. I want to be on the podcast. Yes, but you should, I guess you should have made. Is there a thing with a cat looking down through a hole in the in the ceiling? Is that a thing? Um, All right, anyway, I was trying to have a meme yeah. callback. Totally failed. <laughs> Never mind. Forget, forget it. So anyway, but let's. So so I always start with uh, talking about people and their history and and this kind of uh the cat story was was my uh, clumsy way of trying to begin to ask you about your story in science so i looked a little bit on on your webpage and i can see that um you you have a already kind of a crazy history of uh oxford and germany i can see your name displaying here and you have a complicated you have a complicated <laughs> name so i need to hear the whole story here Okay, so the whole story um, is, uh, okay, so, so let's start off with this. Academically, I started out in, um, in Germany. That's where I was born and raised. And um, I did a bachelor's and master's degree in uh, physics at uh, TU Berlin. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, I, so, so the short story is I then went on to uh, um, Oxford Mathematics to do a PhD and currently I'm in the biology department at the University of Washington in Seattle um, and so uh, I think it's a very kind of on-brand story these days for network science that you end up switching departments over and over again because there's nowhere that you really fit um, there's not one place that kind of fully captures all the things that you're interested in and that you want to do so uh, I I think like the, the reason that I, I started studying physics, it was kind of like an accident. Um, it was a plan B. My parents wanted me to go to med school. Um, yes. I never wanted to, uh, but I like I did what they told me anyways and applied for it. Uh, luckily, I didn't get into med school in the first round. And then I convinced them that I had to have a plan B that ended up being physics physicists ended up being like really nice people to hang out with and so I, I stuck around for a while um, and then the switch to mathematics was uh, uh, in part motivated with um, that well first of all kind of moving from the German system to the UK system some of the questions that you'd usually ask it within the within theoretical physics in Germany rather than in applied mathematics they tend to be in applied mathematics departments in the UK. So that made the switch more natural. But it was also that um, I did a lot of computational work during my master's. 
where I kind of very late into the masters, I learned that there's a whole mathematical underpinning that could easily explain a lot of the things that I saw in the simulations, but I just didn't really know what I was seeing and why. And so the the ability of kind of um, mathematical foundation to be really insightful in terms of explaining patterns that we see in real data and in simulated data that kind of got me thinking that I want to learn more mathematics. I want to be able to, to bring that to the problems that I'm interested in. And so that made the switch to mathematics. And then the, the other switch to, to biology was really just that um, throughout my PhD, I was working on like loosely on applications of biology. And so um, after doing that for four to five years, um, on a very theoretical end, I just wanted to see whether it, uh, it's actually useful for something. I wanted to talk to practitioners and see what they're interested in and whether what I can bring to the table uh, makes any difference to them. And so that's that's uh, my academic trajectory. Um, yes, but you're you're already skipping yeah. steps because I I can't I'm so I don't know yeah. but I can't imagine that it's super easy to get into math grad school at Oxford. Is that is that uh, is that is that is that, is that is that is that just um, is that you must have somehow been kind of found out that once you started the physics that you had a facility with math and you must have uh, done well or had fun with it or so, so oh, yeah, talk, talk a little bit about that. Is it easy to get started on, on, uh, in, in grad school at Oxford? I thought it was maybe uh, really hard. So yes and no. So first of all, I think getting into Oxford is quite, quite competitive, but it is more competitive for undergrads than it is for grad students. Um, it. So it's a, uh, uh, I, I think like in terms of applications per actually admitted student in the end, it's it's like on the order of hundreds of thousands um, in the ratio for undergrads and for grad students, it's anywhere between like on the order of um, five to one to like in the very popular pro programs, maybe a hundred to one or something. Um, and then for me, it was kind of like, uh, it was honestly a numbers game. So um I, I knew that I wanted to switch to mathematics. I didn't know that I wanted to go to Oxford. I did know that I was tired of commuting between Berlin and Oxford to meet my boyfriend. And so that's ah. why I started applying for programs all over the UK. Um, and then it really just, it was, it was a bit of practice. So I had a lot of interviews uh, for PhD programs and I entirely botched like the first two. Uh, but at some point, you, you realize, I, I wasn't prepared for some of the questions they, they had. Like, uh, the first one, in most cases, was, why do you want to do a PhD? And I was like, I mean, obviously, I knew that I wanted to, but I didn't have, like, a story or kind of smooth out to tell in that, in, in that moment. And so by the third time around, I had, it, I had it all down. I had my kind of little story and presentation that I could give. Um, and... Uh, uh, so I actually applied, I think, for three different programs in Oxford. Um, uh, they, uh, the, the, the first one that I applied for, the interview went so bad, it was supposed to be a 30-minute interview. And after 15 minutes, we all agreed to kind of just let it be because <laughs> it was clear it wasn't leading anywhere. Um, and then it was kind of just luck because it's, it's like with uh, submitting a paper in a review process. So there's like two or three people who are going to judge your merit. Uh, and sometimes you connect. 
and they really get the same things that they get the things that you want to tell them. They right. agree with the things that motivate you and the things that you're interested in. And sometimes they don't. So like uh, the first two times it didn't work out. The third time I immediately clicked with the people who interviewed me. One of them ended up being one of my PhD advisors. Um, uh, and, and that was it. So I, like, I guess the, the lesson to be learned is it's a lot of luck. And if you're, if you're really into getting into one school or another, um, you just apply early, apply to many different programs. Also, has many departments where like, I could have ended up in biochemistry too. Like, I applied for biochemistry, for maths, for physics program, because there were lots of things that I was interested in where I could see myself doing that in different departments. Yeah, that's awesome. I was gonna, I was gonna make a joke that uh, this this thing. I know that it continues, you know, at the, and and at the postdoc level, they'll take anyone, right? Like that's how I got to do post postdocs at fancy places. <laughs> that the hardest thing in the world is to get in as undergrad, and then at, when you're a postdoc, they're like, uh, yeah. we need, need more people. Let's take <laughs> this, take this. But but Alice, um, that. I have to say, this is the first time I'm doing this on a podcast, but I don't know if the, it's the wind or what it is, but you're, I think that your sound sometimes gets really bad. So this is my little recorder. Let's try it. Um, and then yeah, if, if the, I'll send you that later. Super good. So, so you're recording? All right, let's uh, then then let's uh, let's continue and and maybe maybe we don't need it. It's just that some, some of the, sometimes it just dips and I don't know if it's like the wind hitting hitting. So some of the times it's good, but anyway, we'll we'll figure it out. But let's get back to the let's get back to this because I still have uh, m- many questions. So now <laughs> now you're at now you are at Oxford, right? And you uh, write this PhD, and maybe we'll save that because we'll be talking about a lot of the work I think or some of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you switch to Seattle. But now that I'm talking to someone who is young and not at the end of their career <clears throat> or not mid-career or whatever, most of the people, it's not that I talk to anyone at the end of their career. Uh, that would be terrible for uh, the people, the previous guests. But, uh, but mid-career who have kind of made this transition to being, um, you know, getting a... a at least a kind of a permanent position. And so I said, you know, why did you stick it out? How did you, you know, because, it, and, and I think a theme that comes is also what I see with you is a lot of people were not super passionate about science their entire lives, but they kind of stumbled into it and then they just liked it better and better. They found out that it somehow suited them and, and it grew in them. And this is also what I'm, I'm sensing in you, but I, and same thing for me, but I, I do remember kind of being in my first postdoc or maybe even as a graduate student and, and kind of thinking, you know, will I make it? Where, like, how will it, how would it all go? Like, the, you know, like one of my professors once said, I train um, 50 PhD students, let's say, in my career, and one of them can get my job. So you know, what is it about science, I guess, that makes you stick it out and keep at it? And what what are your worries and concerns for the future? Uh, there's lots of worries and concerns of the future. So there's obviously like, um, 
there's survivor bias to this. I could tell you now the, the story of why I believe I'm, I'm going to be a great scientist, I'm going to be a famous professor one day, and uh, if that turns out to be true, then people can look back at this podcast and say, that's how she started out, and if it's not going to be true, which might very well be the case, then this just gets buried and I'll never talk about it in the future. So I think one thing that um, is has been important to me um, since I started looking, even for my first postdoc at the end of my PhD, there was obviously the decision of whether to do a postdoc at all or whether to go into industry um, or do something entirely else. Um, uh, and it was always important to me to have a plan B and a plan C in case just things don't work out. And that's also been very helpful, kind of just mentally knowing that if things don't work out the way that I want them to, I'm not going to be stranded. There's like other opportunities, other roads that are open to me. So that's that's basically my strategy for it. Um, uh, I think I'm very passionate about what I do right now. I like being an academic researcher. Um, and if I can, I will continue to do so. But um, basically just, just yesterday or the day before I met up with my, with my PhD advisor and we talked about what my plan A's, plan B's and plan C's are and how those are going to evolve as I... So I'm, I'm uh, going to finish my postdoc in Seattle probably at the end of the year and then move on to doing something else. And then uh, we talked about how that would affect my plans. Also, sorry about um, there might be, yeah, there's the garbage truck coming by. <laughs> but yes, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's the danger of being outside in the sun. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. But it's not like I wanted to have some kind of gotcha or anything like that. It's more kind of, I'm just curious what it feels like. And I guess when I was, a when I was a student, I never talked to anyone about it because I felt that it was my own personal concern. So now I have free range to ask questions of people. So now I'm asking you, because I think it is kind of a big deal when you're a young researcher and you, and it is a lot of energy, right? You have, you kind of, I think it's the best job in the world, but it's at the same time, it's also incredibly hard work. You're competing with people, in my case, at least, that are way smarter than you and all seem to be working harder than you. Uh, and so you kind of think, how, <laughs> how is this all going to, to work out? And, and of course, the only answer, as you said, is to have some different plans and put one foot in front of the other or whatever. But, uh, but I hope it's okay that I... Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, like, in terms of how it feels, like, I'm not going to lie, to some extent it feels terrible to not have the uh, certainty, to not be able to, you know, plan in advance. Like, my family is, is asking me whether they can come and visit me maybe next year, and I have to tell them, I don't know where I'm going to be next year. So, like, don't book a flight to anywhere because we don't we don't know yet. Um, and so, so, so that's been really challenging. And I don't know, like, whether things changed over time, but... Um, uh, I also see like ads coming out for postdoc positions. Some of them are limited in time for like six months or even three months. And like luckily, I've always been on contracts that ran um, at least for a year. Uh, I don't know how I would do with less than that um, to kind of just move your whole life for a few number of months. Basically, you settle in, you settle out again. So that um, I think I, I think the most challenging part is that um, kind of the 
the system expects you to be uh, flexible, to move to anywhere across the world, but then to also be able to do it like on a short notice for a very short amount of time is is just um, very challenging. And obviously, like I'm I'm passionate about it. Everybody else who's in it is too. Everybody's trying to give 200%, which is what you need to do because everybody else is doing that too. So you give 200%, you invest yourself fully into it, uh, and then you know that the rate of return is quite low. Um, I, I guess like it, it is it is challenging and so that's why uh, like for me it's always been important to kind of when there was like a day where nothing worked out the way that I wanted it to to just take a step back and say that's okay I can always go back to, to kind of a small town Germany and start a bunny farm yes I feel like that's a good that's a good uh, plan B the bunny farm I believe is uh it's a, it's a well-known, there's a lot of great scientists that at one point or another worked in the bunny business. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, so that seems, <laughs> no, but I, but I, but I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you think, do you think, like I, so, so, so I also wanted to ask just quickly about, I see that you're organizing uh women in network science i see that mm -hmm. you explicitly say that you also want to work for minorities uh that are in <clears throat> complexity science and network science and kind of near where you are do you think there are more and more movements of this kind we are kind of moving away from this picture of a scientist who has to be some uh white man who works uh 120 hours per week and subsist on coffee and, and so on. So do you think with all, like the many structural things that are making things more unfair, I think also in science, but there are also things moving in the right direction. So do you think we're moving in a direction where this is a little bit better, where young researchers begin to take a stand, or do you think it's still a long way or where are you at with this? Well, I think it can be both. I think it's it's things are moving in the right way, but it's probably still going to be a long road to um, where we might want to go. There's also like only so many things that can happen in academia. So I think a lot of the, the issues that you, for example, see with things like uh, um, sexism in the workplace are things that are universal um, to... Uh, all types of jobs and so as long as it's a kind of um, societal and, and cultural phenomenon it's it's kind of hard to see how academia as like this one singular uh, group of people could you know be uniquely different from all of the others so I think it's good to see that there's more push in academia for kind of equity of uh, various different forms. It's good to see that in in uh, other industries, uh, other types of jobs as well. And kind of, I hope that um, societies as a whole can like slowly but steady make make the the right kind of progress along those lines. Um, for me, it's great because uh, I'm so. I got involved with women in network science at the beginning of when the pandemic started because I actually needed some sort of support group. It, it was kind of hard to transition to the whole work from home thing. I had just started my first postdoc and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so like just being able to connect with people who are similar to me, who might have similar experiences, that was um, 
that was a really great thing and that's how I basically got very uh, engaged with the whole topic and, and that's uh, why we're building that society now and I'm hoping it it's, uh, it's going to have some great impact in the future. That's awesome. So it's a it's in a way a positive side side effect of the pandemic that um, that in starting this thing up, you're also starting something up that can have lasting. But I mean, I, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And and I think it's awesome. And I think it's great that you're doing it. And I think it is it is necessary. And I think it's it's also yeah. I mean part I mean part of me starting this podcast is also because of the academic right that it's it's an excuse to have conversations like you would at conferences but that you just uh, don't get to have anymore so it's nice to block out an hour to talk about a little bit of um, uh, academic su substance but also just hear how it's going how it's going with everyone so so uh, this is my you're you're volunteering for my little support group uh, here also um, I'm glad to Yes, awesome. All right. Uh, so let's begin to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. the paper. So um, I love motifs, and I've thought a lot about motifs also in my own work, from, but from a completely different perspective. Of course, I have been too lazy to uh, read the paper, but I did skim it, uh, and it got very terrifying. Uh, at the end, you can really see that it, you did do PhD in math. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I note it down here, I have in my notes. It's called Motifs for Processes. And as far as I can tell, it's still a preprint. So it means that uh, we, can't, we can't go too deep in the stories about the reviewing process, uh, since uh, <laughs> you may endanger uh, the paper. Uh, but but like I, as I said before, a very terrifying paper. It looked friendly in the beginning, lots of little pictures of motifs, and then somewhere around page twelve or thirteen, uh, the equations begin coming. Um, like I said, I was reading about Ornstein Uhlenbeck processes, um, and uh, and so um, yeah. So tell me tell me about the paper. Okay, so it's it's interesting to hear how how you perceived it. Because like the way that we wrote it, that we had it in mind, it is entirely okay for you to get lost on page 12. Um, the, the first half of the paper, the one with the pretty pictures, um, that is kind of to uh, convey all of the ideas that Mason and I had regarding uh, motifs and, and how we can formalize that in mathematics in a way that can be helpful and insightful. And the second half is that we kind of have an example where we then... Uh, apply all of the, these ideas to the Ornstein-Ulenbeck process. And so if you don't care about Ornstein-Ulenbeck processes, for example, or if you don't care about seeing how you actually kind of get your hands dirty and do the mathematics and just kind of want to get the big picture of, of, of the idea that we had, I think the first 10 pages or so are entirely enough for that. Uh, and in fact, like... Um, uh, I think in, in terms of explaining today, I will focus on that because there's like some ideas that I that I'm really proud of that we uh, uh, kind of developed over the years and summarized in that paper. And so those, um, you, you don't need to kind of 
get all the maths at the end to, to get those ideas. And uh, if, if you do want to do the maths, there's the rest of the paper or there's always the, um, the option to, for people to get in touch with me and kind of say, I don't get the maths, but I, I like the first part. Can we somehow apply it to like the, the things that I work on? So that has happened a few times now. And it's, it's really cool to talk to people about, um, whether this, these type, types of motifs for processes also pop up in, in other, um, application areas. Yes. And I, and I just <clears throat> want to say like the cool, like if when you get to math where you can drop, something that some that's called Ornstein Unenbeck processes that is still <laughs> super cool I mean how much cooler does it get so so that's for sure uh, street cred everywhere but I, <laughs> but I agree that probably we shouldn't go that deep and on the podcast at least so let's talk about some of those ideas uh, from the from the first first part of the first part of the paper because the thing is wh when so then I'm going to try and set you up. So I hope I don't uh, mess it up. But the thing is, when you think about temporal networks, everything gets very complicated. And in a static network, we can all agree about everything. We know what a triangle is. We know what a degree is. We know all these simple things. But on a temporal network, two reasonable people can disagree about even basic definitions. So how do you think about them and how's it different? Because I think you do think about it a little bit differently than people tend to. Is that correct? So uh, in a way, um, so I'm, I'm thinking about processes on networks. So I actually, I agree that like the, the temporal setting is insanely complicated. I disagree in the way that um, there's even on simple graphs, there's a lot of things that people can disagree on uh, when it comes to motifs. Um, like uh, and and we'll get to uh, get to that in a second. So basically, I started out with graphs that are static, um, and you have a, a coupled differential equation that simulates a process on that graph. So um, connecting to to things that you've um, had previously on your podcast, that could be like a, a city network where you have roads and and you. Tend, those tend to be static at least over some period of time, but there's dynamics run, running on them, right? There's people uh, going from A to B, there's cars going from one place to another within a city. So there's like a lot of things happening on networks, even when those networks don't change uh, over time. And so that was the, the setting that we considered. And we are thinking of uh, kind of how these things change uh, once you go to a temporal network setting, but you're absolutely right that it's like super complicated and there's so many things to consider. Um, so in the, in the setting that we have in the paper, the, st the static network setting, um, we have the static network and then we have some linear dynamical system that lives on that network. And, uh, um, the reason that we call the paper motifs for processes is that we have this process taking place on the network and we want to know how does the network structure kind of interact with the process that is happening on top. How does, um, for example, things about the network structure constrain or enhance certain uh, features of the, of the dynamics that 
uh, we see that might be important to us. And so that is also why we considered the example of kind of uh, correlation and covariance in the Ornstein-Ullenberg process. So in that setting, the question would be, if you have kind of some spreading process, and the Ornstein-Ullenberg process is just one of them. You could use like an SIS or SIR model if you're interested in epidemics. You could use something else. Um, but so you're interested, you have like, if it's a city, you have a place A, like it could be a hospital, and you have a place B that is a school, and there's like some dynamics going on of like people popping up in different places or something like that. Um, and so then you're looking at the correlation between two places. So for example, how many people show up at any given point. Um, and uh, you ask, how does the uh, structure of the network kind of um, influence the correlation between two nodes in your system. And so that is the example that we consider in the paper. We have, we have the Ornstein-Uhlenberg process, which is a linear spreading process. So there's something spreading on the network. And we ask if you have two nodes in the system, I and J, how does, um, do connections between I and J or indirect connections to other nodes, um, how do these influence the correlation between the nodes I and J? And it turns question, up, yeah. Can I ask a question now, just to kind of clarify? So, th so of course, this makes sense, and and you can have temporality in in many domains, and and so so. But so the processes that you consider here, we also mm -hmm. when we, I, there's an unaired uh, podcast where I talked to Renaud Lambiot, and he talks about kind of the two kinds of thermodynamics: equilibrium thermodynamics and non-equilibrium thermodynamics, and that are and and so. And so processes also exist somewhere on the spectrum. Some processes, if you have an SIR, you know, like one thing happens, a big process, and then we get to the other state, and then it slows down again. But other processes kind of keep reoccurring. So when we think about correlations between nodes, where are mm -hmm. we in, in on the spectrum of equilibrium versus in the getting to equilibrium and, and so on. Can you be more, tell us more about what's going on in these fancy named uh, processes? Um, in these fancy named processes, so the Ornstein-Ullenberg process um, is uh, one, so it's a noisy spreading process. So um, what you have is that there's kind of like a, just Gaussian white noise happening in every node in the network. And then when two nodes are coupled, if like one node has a really high value of its amplitude, so that could be something like a voltage, for example, if you're thinking about neurons, um, some potential. Uh, so if one of them has a really high value and it's connected to another one, then it um, pushes up the other one to also have a really high value. So that is the, the nature of the spreading process. Uh, what you then have is the kind of um, over time signals decay so if a neuron or an otherwise node has a really high value at a given point in time, eventually it will go down to zero. Of course, there's always noise in the process. So kind of the going back to zero is kind of like a weekly line and then it never exactly stays at zero, but it kind of wiggles around zero once it's there. And so the dynamics come into, in, into play where you say, okay, we, we, we start with the system uh, and we kind of poke some of the nodes in the network, uh, and then um, the, those signals propagate through the system to other nodes, and then we can see patterns arising that way. Uh, so the setting that we have for the example in the paper, um, uh, because we wanted to have it kind of be as simple as, as reasonable, 
um, was to look at stuff that happens close to steady state. So imagine all of the nodes, they're kind of no there's a noisy signal in all of them. It's kind of close to zero, but maybe um, because you wanted it to, or maybe just by chance there, occasionally there's one that kind of has a higher value than others and kind of that signal then propagates to all of the nodes that it's connected to, but that will die over a few time steps again. And then there's another one that will just randomly have a higher signal than the others and uh, spread the signal to its neighbors. Yeah, I'm sorry, for, but I'm going to keep asking just to mm -hmm. clarify a little bit, uh, just in my own mind. So in my own mind, this sounds and and in an SI in an SIR model as a kind of thing to say that, but wouldn't just nodes that were approximately be correlated? How would you get kind of long-range correlations with processes along this line? So uh you are right that things that are directly nodes that are directly connected have the highest chance to uh, to say it in the in the language of motifs, a motif that is a directed edge from one node to another or a bidirectional edge between two nodes is one that contributes a lot to correlation between these two nodes. Um, the thing is that there are other motifs that also contribute. They have a smaller contribution, like indirect paths where you kind of take three steps or something like that. And so you would say that those don't tell you much about correlation, much less than direct connections between edges. Um, but they do contribute a little. And so what we do in the paper is we actually, um, we actually calculate, we derive what the actual contributions are. So for the Ornstein-Uhlenberg process, we can, for example, say that a direct edge from one node to another uh, induces something like a correlation of at least 0.1. And that depends on the parameters of that system that could be larger or smaller. But, but like for, for a given set of parameters, you can get actually a number for that. And then you can also compute that for, say, an indirect path that is like a, a from going from I to like somewhere and then to J. Uh, and so you can say that that one maybe uh, contributes only half as much to correlation. And now you see where I'm going with this. So yes, the nodes that are directly connected those are probably going to have the highest correlations, but then you can also have the case where I and J are not directly connected, but there are a lot of paths that indirectly connect them. And so those might actually end up having even higher correlations if you kind of set the parameters right, and if there's a lot of these two-step pa two paths, these motifs that connect these two nodes. Yes, that makes sense. And it also makes sense to me that once you start thinking about processes, even of this kind, in terms of motifs, it's clear that if one of the nodes in the motifs has, let's say, higher centrality or somehow closer to really the action, then the motifs is always, always going to be through that and then in some kind of, you know, downstream uh, configuration, right? So, so yeah. I can see how motifs here are somehow... Um, connected in an interesting way to these um, spreading processes. Totally. All right. I'm, now I'm ready to take next. I know you just started explaining, but I just thought um, it was my duty as a, as a podcaster here to make sure that I didn't just pretend that I was uh, with you, but also kind of had a <laughs> Definitely. 
Um, let's let's see how where, where to take this next. So basically, um, the 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 thing that Mason and I have hoped to contribute with this paper is kind of some motivation to uh, look for mechanisms by which motifs contribute to things in network dynamics that we're interested in. Uh, and so this could, for example, be that we're interested in how does the correlation between two nodes come about if you have Ornstein-Uhlenbeck dynamics running on that system. It could be something else. Might not be interested in correlation, might be interested in things like entropy, synchronization, or something else. Or you're not interested in the Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process. As long as you have linear, a linear dynamical system and kind of the the system property that you're interested in is not too crazy. Uh, you will be able to do the same mathematics that we did for the correlations with the Ornstein-Ulenbeck process. And the result of these calculations is that it shows you how much um, motifs can contribute to the to the property that you're interested in. And so I'm going to stick to the example for now. So if you're interested in the correlation between nodes I and J, it tells you what kind of motifs that connect the nodes I and J po contribute positively or negatively to correlation. There's also some that contribute negatively to correlation. Um, and and how much does each of these co uh, contribute? And once you have these, these sets of motifs, basically you get a table, like you could think of for every motif, you get a number. And so these motifs, they, they don't have to exist in the graph. It just tells you if you have a motif like that, how much would that motif contribute? And then if you have a, a, an actual network that you're interested in from data or so, you can then start to look for those motifs. Uh, and when you find them, say, okay, we have these motifs and I know what they're doing to the system. I know that these are going to enhance correlation between these two nodes that I'm interested in, or I'm, uh, these are going to decrease the correlation between the two nodes that I'm interested in. And so kind of looking, doing this theoretical study where you don't just, you know, you don't just go into your data, you start counting motifs. And if you find one that happens like a lot of the times, you say, okay, this has to be important. Uh, you can add to that story by just looking at theoretical models, dynamical systems on networks, and then say, it's not just because I find these motifs in real data that I think they're important. I can actually tell a story of if I model the dynamics, these motifs tend to have such and such effect on um, uh, system properties. And so that's that's the gist of it, kind of. Yes, and I think that's mm -hmm. nice. And, and I think that's, you know, if you go all the way back to the original motif paper from uh, Milo et al. in Urielon's group, they are exactly making this the, the opposite argument to say that we count all these motifs and we see that when we shuffle it, some of them disappear, and but, but in empirical data, they're all there. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and vice versa, some that should be there aren't there. And what you're saying is, well, we can actually go and explain that right we can yeah, go yeah, the so. other we can go the other way and say we have the the math that tells us what what kind of dynamical processes um begin to generate motifs of this kind right is that uh, yeah yeah so it's it's um actually uh can i share some slides because i think that might help with this yes you definitely can um, um let's see how i do this I try and keep it audio friendly uh, because 
it turns out it's a big time commitment to sit and look at us. Oh, or, uh, right. well, no, no, you can still show the slides. I'm just saying um, that we, we try, like somehow it's, it's easier if you can go around mm -hmm. and cook your food or something while you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> but, but try the slides. <laughs> we'll talk, we'll talk about them. And, and, um, and it's, it's totally fine. I think it's also impossible to really talk about science without slides right uh, or at least drawing stuff yeah so yeah. um this is this is one of the figures that we made for the paper and i'm going to kind of talk about it so that uh, people on the audio can can catch up so basically uh we were just talking about uh how the original work on motifs from like about 20 years ago started out uh doing entirely empirical work that is you go into your data you count the motifs you have some kind of baseline model. In that instance, you get it from shuffling. You could get it in other ways too. And then you say, okay, I found more triangles in the real data than I found in, in our null model. So uh, that means that triangles are in some way probably important for, for these systems that I'm looking at. Um, and so that is, that, that is like a solid empirical approach of how to address this problem. Uh, and uh, basically... Uh, I just kind of throughout all of my career in, in, in like everything that I worked on, I just, I'm, I'm very much on board of, of saying that whenever we do science, we should do both. We should do theory and we should do kind of empirical work where we look at, where we look at the data. And here I felt like we have the data side pretty solidly figured out. So this, or this paper by Milo et al, that is about 20 years old now. There's lots of work that builds on top of that where people have explored different data sets or where people have pointed out that um, maybe there's different ways of how to shuffle and that these give you different types of uh, results. And so there's like a lot of discussion of what the best null models are. And it usually ends up depending on what kind of data you're wanting to build the null model for. But in any case, you have this, you have this huge body of work that addresses the fact of how do we do empirical science uh, that tells us something about importance of motifs and networks. And so where I see that there's a lot of room for kind of, it's, it's not a complete void, but there's definitely room for building more is on the theory side where we say, okay, now that we have the data science side of it, where's the theory that can give us um, mechanistic explanations of why the motifs that we see in the real networks, why those might be important. And so this is, this is what we were going, going for. And like, it, it's not, it's, it's actually, um, we're definitely not the only people working on the problem, which kind of, um, validates I, I, I see it as validation in the sense that it is an interesting problem with like lots of room to explore different approaches. Uh, and uh, actually, as there's the next garbage truck, by the way, it comes, it comes by about two or three times. Um, as you already know, um, Tim LaRocque and Jonas Yul and I are organizing a NetSci satellite on motifs and dynamics because I, just like you, I am too lazy to read all the papers. So we just invited everybody that whose papers we didn't read on motifs and networks and theory and data science. And um, uh, I'm hoping to learn more about the other approaches that people have taken there. But so basically what we did was uh, we, we said that, oh, look, for linear dynamical systems, those are 
mathematically very tractable, and there we can exactly say how much each of the motifs uh, contributes to a system. And so why I shared this this figure over here is that we have, like on the left, we have a gray box, and that's also, I think, figure one or figure two in the paper, that where we kind of say this is this is the empirical approach of how... Um, uh, of how people go about finding motifs in, in, in data, finding them in real networks. But there's like a whole pipeline, uh, that I have here in the blue and the orange box of things that, uh, we can do from a theory side to get results that we can then marry up with, with the, with the results that we get from the data side. Yeah. No, and I think it's beautiful. I think that in those papers, the weak side was always the explanation side, right? It was like, one of these is a feed-forward loop and that has biological importance mm -hmm. or something like this, but there was never any kind of really, a, a like we know that the network configures itself into these, um, into these motifs preferentially from the empirical side, but I agree with you that there are very few models that tell us how can we get to a distribution of um, motif frequencies or why is the empirical distribution of motif frequencies this way? And I guess that that leads me to the question that then you mentioned the case of the street network um, because the network is fixed and you have a very clear process on top of it. But in many networks, also the ones that where we have been counting motifs, the network itself, is also um, is also being reconfigured, mm -hmm. uh, and the motifs that people tend to count in these methods have to do with actual configurations of uh, links and so on. So, if you were to kind of speculate or think about interplay between dynamical processes and network structure, do you have kind of theories or thoughts on how how that's connected? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot. And so, um, uh, so what happens is that um, the, the thing that the, the key to looking at the contribution that um, motifs have to processes or networks that we use in our paper is that we kind of say a linear dynamical system is just an overlay of tons and tons of walks that happen on that system from one node to another. Uh, and because it's linear, you can actually kind of decompose it like that. And so you can say how much does every kind of walk or combination of walks contribute to the things that you're interested in, and then you count do the, then you look at do these combinations of walks that you're interested in. Uh, so these are the things that we call process motifs, by the way. Do they happen on a small piece of network structure? And that essentially gives you the, the contributions of network structure to the things that you're interested in. And so, um, but the key to all of this is to look at how do walks or combinations of walks influence the things that you're interested in. And as soon as you move away from the static network setting and go into a temporal setting, what it essentially is, like you can think, not always, but sometimes you can think of a temporal network as a network that like, you have an underlying network that exists all the time, but maybe some of the edges or some of the nodes are only available to you at like in a very short time frame and they're not available before or afterwards. So essentially what happens if in the temporal setting is 
um, by kind of deactivating nodes or edges at some time points. You restrict the, the, the types of walks or the number of walks that can happen on these networks. Uh, and so in that sense, if if you compare what happens on the on the static network to the uh, temporal network, for example, if you're looking at correlation in the system with the Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process, you would see that correlations across the board would probably be lower in the temporal setting simply because by making it temporal, you've inhibited some of the things that would have happened in the static network. Uh, and so the interesting thing is... Um, when you get to the setting where your the dynamics that happen on the network have a similar time scale to the dynamics of the of the network edges, and uh, you you are in a setting where maybe each edge can be used only once, and then after that it kind of evaporates or something like that, uh, and so uh, that has has a significant impact on on these uh, on the contributions of motifs. And um, that's that's basically as far as my speculation can go so far because we haven't we haven't done the scary equations for that part yet. No, but it sounds it sounds really exciting and it sounds like a very cool approach to this. And I think this idea of the full network as the star, substrate and then temporality is kind of turning on or off is a nice way of thinking about it. And it's a naturally natural way to connect it to the types of processes that you're interested in. So super cool. Um, so one of the, um, if I can add to that, so one of the, the very easy examples, because like everybody does epidemic modeling these days, for example, is um, uh, you usually don't necessarily say that you have an SIR process as being on a temporal network if you don't actually have a temporal network underneath. But you could think of it as one, where you say every node that is removed is like that that is a you could interpret that as a structural change and so we do talk about that in in the paper a little bit saying that um we have process motifs and we have structure motifs so process motifs are kind of the things that we have in this picture with the with the blue edges over here every uh, every kind of of these blue arrows corresponds to a walk that happens on on the network and that's a that's a small piece of process and then we connect that to small pieces of network structure down here by just counting the processes the, the small pieces of process that can happen on a small piece of structure um and so if you look at something like SIR dynamics, it turns out that there's not a ton of, of different types of walks that can happen on the network because basically because it's SIR, so every node can only be infected once and then eventually it will leave the system. Um, it kind of the, the walk burns all the bridges that it takes. Uh, and so every walk can only happen once in the system. And suddenly the distinction between process motifs and structure motifs that we work so hard to make in the paper becomes a lot less obvious because basically for every process motifs, there's just one structure motif and vice versa. And that's one of the reasons that I think that if you look at um, uh, papers that exist, exist, like papers that we cite in our work that inspired us to do what we did, um, kind of the some of the ideas that we had, they they are already all there. It's just that if you're looking at SIR dynamics, you don't they they kind of 
you have to you have to look very closely to see these differences because it's really easy to kind of look at it and think that process and structure kind of map one to one so you don't have to look at the difference between the two and it's really just for some dynamical processes where you don't have the bridge burning of the uh, with the random walks that it becomes relevant and so if you have either that the process burns bridges by SIR dynamics or you have a temporal network where the edges pop up and, and vanish super super quickly then uh, like a lot of the math that we that we have here might become actually a little bit easier yes no i think i think that makes a lot of sense and and i mean i one i i'm also thinking you know why 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 hasn't there been more focus on process in a way but but i think that you know one of the reasons i guess is that in a lot of the systems that we care about it's actually quite difficult to measure the process. So in the empirical data, it's kind of easy to observe the edges as they're reconfigured. Like we can look at when, when do I make a phone call and we can visualize that temporality quite easily. But the information that's spreading and what I'm talking about uh, is more difficult to access and how it goes and from a state in my mind and changes a state in someone else's mind, you know, like is, is very, very difficult to access. And, and this is also true, let's say in biological systems where we can't even really observe the dynamics and we can observe maybe some of the states. So I think the thing is that we can simulate processes, but there's not so much empirical data at least in, in many of the systems that network scientists typically look at. And I guess this is why it, it hasn't had so much attention, but I think it's really important. And I think it shows exactly that thinking about the math and, and coming to it from your direction is also really valuable, even in kind of shaping what is it that we should be striving to get data on or what should we be striving to look at by saying, no, no, look, this is an important distinction, right? 100%. So so I'm, I'm just going to advertise things that uh, I don't have any self-interest in, but like one of the things where I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes is actually uh, work that I think um, uh, in part Renaud Lambiot, but um, also very much Ingo Schultes and his group are involved in where they look at uh, data of uh, paths in networks. And so they have that for um, traffic and collaboration data or something like that, as far as I know. Uh, and so kind of that's that's like an, an entirely new beast in terms of data because it's like not just time series data on the network. It has like this um, dimension that comes from having paths that go basically every data point has like a history attached to it. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see them addressing that from a data science perspective of saying, how can we analyze this data? How can we look for pa patterns in that data? Um, and I really hope that it kind of at some point is able to kind of marry up with the, uh, with the theory where we can kind of have the, the, the theory and the data science tools come together, pick up on these types of data and, and learn something useful from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, for sure. There are some people working on it. I mean, I also think about Martin Roswell, his, yeah. uh, his map equation, you know, it does random walks, but there is also, he has done some work on empirical flows with 
I think the airline network and you can model travelers. Um, in science, there's also journals and, and authors. Um, mm -hmm. There are some examples. Uh, and I think it must also be the next level for this, for science of science in a way, or for, you know, that what, that you actually try and see what is it that we not, don't just count references, but we try and look at idea flows by looking at the text where the reference ends and stuff. So, so there are definitely places where one can do this stuff. It's just that it's, it's not been the mainstream because it's non-trivial to get access to it. Um, so, so I, I agree. I look forward to those papers. Really cool. One, I mean, we're getting past the hour here, but one last question, uh, which is you said that some people had contacted you about this. So, so what are kind of, it's not that you have to name drop uh, who contacted you, but what are kind of some ideas for applications or systems where this kind of work looks like it's being applied in the not too distant future or is relevant? So, uh, yeah, so basically kind of in terms of applications, uh, I, I did my, uh, PhD. So that, that's a PhD paper. I, it was with a focus on, um, biological applications. So when we took the Jonsen-Wurmbeck process, that, uh, was because that is actually quite popular for modeling neurons in the brain in, in theoretical neuroscience. Uh, um, but uh, I, I kept mentioning cities and people and epidemics today because I think uh, the math doesn't care whether you feed in an onstein oldenberg process or not. It, math just needs a nice linear dynamical system. And like linear sounds a bit boring, but we, we tend to use them all over the place, right? We use them in epidemiology. We use them in social science as well. So I've, I've been talking to some people who have like simple processes in social science uh, and kind of looking at the things that they are interested in, can we do a similar analysis for this? Uh, it's not very, it's not very progressed. So that's, that's kind of the stage that we are in right now. Uh, I'm currently in a biology department. I'm working with a lot of neuroscientists here at, um, at the University of Washington. And uh, uh, so one thing that people are interested in here is, uh, can we use that to, to kind of build data science tools that are actually useful for the biologists and neuroscientists here. So we're looking into how process motifs can be used for um, network inference, where you have, say, recordings of a brain region, but you don't know how those neurons are connected. Can you then go back and infer how the neurons are connected? And can process motifs help with that? Really cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me, Suna. This was great. I mean, I skipped it. There's a lot of questions uh, throughout that I could have, we could have easily spent uh, three hours, but I think um, I think we need to wrap it up. It's, a, it's my bedtime is approaching uh, rapidly here <laughs> in uh, Denmark, but but um, but it was really fun. Thank you for coming on, and um, yeah. Uh, Thank you for letting me procrastinate with you.